Father, thank you so much uh, for your word and uh, just the opportunity we have as a church to collectively read through a large chunk of the Old Testament together. I pray that as we reflect on uh, the book of Exodus today, that we would see your glory, that your name would be made great, uh, that you would help us to just uh, stand in awe of who you are and uh, what you do for your people. Help us, Lord, to be humble. Uh, we know that you give grace to those who are humble, and we are in desperate need of your grace. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. Today begins our study of the book of Exodus. And Exodus uh, transitions really nicely with the end of Genesis. I had someone comment to me this week even that, you know, they had kind of viewed the books as pretty distinct and they were pleasantly surprised at how natural of a transition there is from Genesis to the beginning of Exodus there. It begins with the people of Israel in Egypt. And I'm sure it's still fresh in your mind how they got there. Uh, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. He ascended into a position of authority. He was second in command over all of Egypt. And it was that position which enabled him to then invite his family to come and live in Egypt while he provided for them. Now, in my retelling of that story, I did leave out a key component. Let me see if I can just draw it out from you guys through a series of questions here. Here's the first one. Was Joseph just a victim of his brother's hatred, and that's why he ended up in Egypt? No. How about this? Did Joseph just have a stroke of good luck, and that's why he was appointed to second in command? Again, no. How about this? Was it Joseph's good planning that allowed his family to thrive, to become that great nation once they arrived in Egypt? Was that just Joseph kind of pulling strings and making sure things worked out? Again, no, it wasn't. We need to have an understanding of the book of Exodus that these verses are going to point out to us. Here is Joseph speaking to his brothers, and he says this, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me father to Pharaoh and Lord of all of his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. Joseph is very careful to point out, this was not you, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. This was God. Uh, Jacob actually has an interaction with God as he is in the process of moving to Egypt, and God says this to him. God says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. God says, I myself will go with you down to Egypt. And here's the point that I'm trying to make. Exodus begins with the people of Israel in a pretty bleak state, to be honest. We'll get into that in a couple of minutes here. Things are pretty miserable for them. And at no point in this story can we think that they are just victims of a bad set of circumstances. This has just been bad luck. No, we have to remember God brought them here. God is the one who placed them in the best of the land of Egypt, in Goshen. God is the one who is enabling them to multiply, to go from a people who number 70 
to, I think, what chapter 47 says, when they are fruitful and multiplying greatly. God brought the people of Israel to Egypt. And it's in chapter 1, we're told that the people have increased greatly, and those infamous words ring out in verse 8. Go ahead and turn to Exodus 1 if you're not there already. We've got the infamous words of verse 8 that say, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. That spells trouble for the people of Israel. Because now there's someone in power who maybe hasn't heard what this guy Joseph did for Egypt and planning and saving all of this food so that the people of Egypt could stay alive. Now there's a guy who doesn't know why there are so many foreigners living in Goshen. And these people number a ton, and he's going to start thinking to himself, even as the text says, that the people of Israel are too many. They're too mighty for us. He's afraid that maybe one day these people are going to align themselves with Egypt's enemies, that they're going to, you know, fight against Egypt and escape. So Pharaoh puts a plan together. He says, I need to oppress these people. He begins to enslave them. The text says that he makes their life bitter with all of the manual labor that is forced upon them. And Pharaoh, if he's hoping that this somehow, you know, decreases their numbers, the opposite actually happens. They continue to multiply. This is God at work here preserving the people of Israel. So in response, Pharaoh actually employs another strategy. This one isn't so subtle. He actually gets these two midwives, uh, Pua and Shifra, and he tells them that when they are delivering Jewish babies, that they are allowed to keep the daughters alive, but they must kill the sons. This is horrifying. Put yourself in the shoes of these two ladies here. Imagine that, say, the president of the United States I don't even know if that's a fair equivalent to what Pharaoh would have been in that day, but imagine that he comes and directly addresses you and asks you to engage in some wicked behavior. What do you say? What do you do? Someone with this much power telling you to do something evil? What did these ladies do? That brings us to our first question. These ladies chose to disobey Pharaoh. And the question is, why? Jeff? Yeah, pretty simple. According to verse 17, these ladies disobeyed Pharaoh because they feared God. I thought the end of Proverbs 16.6 was appropriate here. It says this, by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Here these ladies are doing just that. They're presented with a choice. Kill the male children. Do they fear God or do they fear Pharaoh? Obviously, they were not intimidated by someone in a position like Pharaoh was telling them what to do, and the choice was pretty easy for them. We'll fear the Lord. We'll fear God here. I I read one commentator who said, he suggested, this is a little bit of speculation here, but he suggested that perhaps the names of these two ladies are recorded here in chapter 1 because they're heroes. I couldn't think of a better word to describe these ladies here. Their actions here are heroic. 
I kind of thought to myself, how many parents that were Jewish had a daughter and thought to name him Pua or Shifra? After the incredible actions of these ladies here, this wasn't on your sheet, so I'm going to catch you off guard a little bit here. But can you think of anyone else in the scriptures who maybe took a similar action as these ladies here who maybe when presented with a choice to fear God or a ruler, someone in a high position, they chose fearing the Lord. Anyone come to mind? Bonnie. Esther. Okay, could you elaborate just a little bit more there? Yeah, kind of standing up for her people there. Bella, I saw your hand raised. Who were you going to say? Esther. Also Esther, okay. Anyone else? Shane? The wise men, not going back to Herod. Yeah, that's a good one. Kaylee? Yes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Rahab. Rahab, okay. Not turning in the spies, Claire. Daniel, yeah. I think we've hit most of them. Uh, the ESV actually has cross-references to the book of Daniel. And it reminds you that there were three Hebrew men who refused to bow down before Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. Uh, when Nebuchadnezzar first finds out about it, he is furious. He, he is livid. And, and somehow he ends up talking to these guys and he says, listen, I'm going to run this back. I'm going to give you guys another crack. When you hear the music... This time, bow down. And they say, don't waste your breath. We don't need a second chance at this. We're telling you right now, we're not doing this. A couple chapters later, Daniel, he prays every day with the windows wide open towards Jerusalem. His enemies put together this uh, plan to get Daniel eliminated. And they have the king put together this decree which says that no one can pray except to the king. What does Daniel do? Same as he's always done. Windows wide open, praying towards Jerusalem. In the book of Acts, maybe you remember, I think it's Peter and some of the other apostles. They're imprisoned. They're warned, stop speaking in the name of Jesus. And what do they say? We must obey God rather than men and they keep going, and they keep talking about Jesus. I want you to be careful. Here's what I'm not saying. You just can't disobey the government when, you know, you think, uh, I'd rather not. I think I want to choose my own way. But when there is a clear decision that needs to be made between fearing God and fearing men, I hope we fear the Lord. Right? Because I think there's coming a time in which the stories of Daniel and these midwives and the apostles in the book of Acts aren't going to sound so foreign to our Christian experience. Right? This sounds kind of bizarre to us that the government would ever be opposed to Christianity or to uh, the one true God. And yet, maybe that's not so far off of our horizon. And we need to decide today, I am going to fear the Lord. I follow him over everything else. Second question here, how did God deal myth, with the midwives in verses 20 and 21? 
Clear. He gave them families. Yeah, he gave them families. God rewarded them. Uh, really neat uh, ending to the story there. Perhaps these ladies couldn't have children previously, and God rewarded them for fearing him. Now, I wanted to take a little bit more of a personal application approach to this with our second set of questions, and I asked you, what do you think are some of the things that people fear today that influence the decisions they make? Yeah. Just think of what do other people think of me? That's a big one. I think that was the first thing I wrote down as well, peer pressure. Yeah, we hate standing out. We hate being the center of attention in a bad way. Peer pressure is something that motivates us, perhaps wrongly. Any other thoughts? What else do we fear? Claire? Lack of money. Lack of money, okay. How about this one? I, I wrote down, perhaps we fear discomfort. We kind of live in an age in which we are very like risk averse, very, you know, I'm gonna choose the path of least resistance, I'm gonna do what's easiest, what requires the least from me. That could be something we fear that influences us, that sometimes makes us pick the wrong choice. And so I asked you, are you susceptible to any of these? Okay, you don't need to raise your hand for this one. This can be uh, rhetorical. But, but seriously, we need to give these things some thought. There are things in our life, certainly, that we are prone to fear that may not result in the best decision-making in our lives we need to fear the Lord. Moving on now to chapter 2, we are introduced to a man and a woman who really rival the bravery of the midwives of the previous chapter. Hebrews 11 actually speaks about this husband and wife duo, and it says that they are not afraid of what Pharaoh had decreed. They don't kill their son. They don't hand him over to the authorities. For three months, they do their best to hide him. And when that becomes impossible, they make a basket of sorts, put him in the Nile River, and it is there that Pharaoh's daughter discovers him. And she's looking for someone to nurse him, and this baby's sister's nearby, and she says, hey, I can find a lady. And once you believe it, she brings the baby back to his birth mom. His birth mom is paid like wages for raising her son, and then the son is given back to Pharaoh's daughter, who ends up naming this baby Moses. And Moses grows up in an incredibly privileged position. For 40 years, he lives a pretty nice life while all of his countrymen are enslaved. The book of Acts, interestingly enough, uh, says that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. And then one day he sees one of his countrymen being abused by an Egyptian, I don't know, taskmaster. What does Moses do? He kills the Egyptian, thinks no one saw him, and then the very next day it's discovered that, oh yeah, a lot of people know about this actually. And Moses books it off into the wilderness and flees for his life. He lives there for another 40 years, and with the final verses of chapter 2, this is where we come to our first question. If you're looking at chapter 2, let me just read verse 23 here. It says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And here's our question here. What does God 
remember in verse 24. These people are at the darkest point in their life. Kaylee, what does he remember? His covenant. The covenant that we remember from the book of Genesis, his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This isn't just a Genesis thing. God remembers it here in Exodus. And what do you think? What specific part of this promise is God going to be begin to fulfill? I ask you to look at Genesis 15. What should we expect that God is going to begin doing here? What component of this covenant? Tell me. <clears throat> He's going to bring his people back to a land. God had promised a great nation, a land of their own, and that one day all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. They are not obviously in a land of their own at the moment. God is going to bring them to that place. Here's Genesis 15 on the screen for you. God says to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And as you reflect on God remembering the people of Israel, hearing their cries, and beginning to act, what were some of the things that you would conclude about God and his character from this passage of Scripture. Tell me. He is faithful. He's faithful. Yeah. Over and over and over again. Maybe we're beating the drumbeat of God's faithfulness a little too much in your mind, but we can't get enough of this. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. I love the last verse of chapter 2. God saw the people of Israel and... God knew. And what follows from this point forward is God beginning to keep the covenant. His plan gets set in motion. There is action from this point forward. And that action begins in chapter 3 by picking back up where we left off with this guy, Moses. He's out tending sheep one day, and he comes to this mountain uh, called Mount Horeb. Interestingly enough, Mount Horeb is a synonym for Mount Sinai, which we're probably a little bit more familiar with. That's where Moses is here in Exodus 3, Mount Sinai. And it's while he's tending these sheep that he sees a bush off in the distance that is burning but is not being consumed. And like most of us, I think we'd be like, i got to go check that out. So Moses goes over there and looks at it, and it's there that he encounters God. And God says that he has chosen Moses to be the man who would go to Egypt and lead the people out of slavery there. In response to God's call, we'll look at this uh, again maybe a little bit later today, Moses has uh, a series of questions, that's a nice way of putting it, Uh, it's probably objections is what it turns into a little bit later on. Uh, Moses asks first, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out? To which God replies that he will be with Moses, and he promises a future sign. That future sign is that when Moses comes out of the land of Egypt, he's going to come right back to Mount Horeb slash Mount Sinai. Moses asked God, well, what if the people ask what your name is? What should I tell them? And this is where we come to our first question today. How does God answer Moses' question about what his name is right there in verse 14? How does God reply? Shirley. I am who I am. 
I am who I am. Yeah, I've actually put verse 14 on the screen for you here. God answers it uh, twice. He says, say to Moses, or God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, I don't know about you, but when you encounter this passage of Scripture, you can tell something pretty important is being communicated here. There is some gravity to this text, but also perhaps a little bit of confusion. I mean, to be honest, I come to this and Moses has asked God what his name is, and God replies, I am. And that doesn't sound like a traditional name to us. It sounds like a little bit more of a description. And even as a description, perhaps we're just still a little bit confused about what I am means. Well, I said this in the second half of that question. Bible scholars believe that this name communicates the idea that God is eternal. He's self-sufficient and faithful to his promises. Let me just elaborate a little bit more on that description that I just read for you. Let's pretend for a minute that Moses asks God what his name is, and God replies, I was. What does that insinuate? Go ahead, Shane. Past tense. Yeah, a past tense. Maybe that God used to be something, but he's not anymore. What if God said, I will be? Kind of sounds like he's developing into something in the future. When God says, I am here, there's kind of a present tense sound to this. God's not changing in the future. He hasn't changed in the past. He has always been. He's always existed. He's, he will always continue to be. He's eternal. This name, I am, also communicates that he is self-sufficient. God was not created by someone else. He's not dependent on anyone or anyone else. He just is. If there was nothing else in creation, God would still be. There might be a third component to this as well, uh, him being faithful to his promises. Uh, some scholars look at the context here of Exodus 3 in which God is revealing his name to Moses as he is keeping the covenant, and they say maybe God's name has something to do with keeping his promises. Regardless, here's what we should know, is that these qualities put God in a category of his own. He is unparalleled. Nothing else can make the claim to be eternal. We all have a beginning. We all have an end. Nothing else can make the claim to be self-sufficient. Even false gods, they're created by other people. They're dependent on other people to be fed or, you know, given attention to. Not the God of the scriptures. He's eternal. He is self-sufficient. Only he can say, I am. Now, I want to pause here for maybe several minutes and address something that appears here in Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to put verse 14 back on the screen for you. And I want you to keep an eye out for a subtle change that takes place between verses 14 and 15, particularly regarding what God's name is. So in verse 14, remember Moses asks God, what shall I say to the people of Israel? Who has sent me? What's your name? God says to Moses, I am who I am. 
Notice specifically in verse 14, he says, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. But when we come to verse 15, we read this. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Did you notice something a little bit unusual in between verses 14 and 15? In verse 14, God says to Moses, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Here in verse 15, God says, say to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And perhaps you read that and you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, why the sudden name change here? One verse ago, your name was I am. Here in verse 15, your name is Lord. And why is Lord in all caps? Well, to begin to answer that question, I want to take a closer look at the Hebrew word that translators have chosen to put Lord when they translate it. Do you guys see what I'm describing thus far? Verse 14, I am. Verse 15, his name is Lord. All right, here is the Hebrew word that translators come across and choose to put Lord. They make this decision over 5,000 times in the Old Testament. That Hebrew word shows up, God's name, and 5,000 times the ESV, the NIV, the NASB, the King James put Lord. Here are just some of the really interesting occurrences of that. Just a little bit later in Exodus, Moses is going to say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, that's God's name, the God of Israel, let my people go. To which Pharaoh replies, who is the Lord? I do not know the Lord. Do you see this? Again, every time you see all caps, L-O-R-D, it is that Hebrew word I just showed you on the screen. This isn't just an Exodus thing, though. This happens 5,000 times. Here's a really famous passage of Scripture, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. How about this from Proverbs 3, another famous verse, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. Here's yet one more occasion of God's name from Joshua, a really famous passage. Joshua tells the people of Israel, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Are you guys tracking with me up to this point? Every time you see Lord in all caps, it is what God told Moses in Exodus 3.15. This is the name I want to be remembered by throughout all generations. Here is Exodus 3.15. The Lord, tell the people of Israel, the Lord has sent me to you. This is my name. This is how I want to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, if you're tracking with me and if you're reading these English translations thus far, what might you conclude from all of the verses that I've shown you that God's name is? What do these English translations make it seem that God's name is? Lord. 
right? You might read the English translations and think that God's name is Lord. But could I just tell you something this morning? God's name is not Lord. Despite what all of these verses seem to be indicating, that's not his name. I hope to demonstrate to that to you. Again, hang with me here. If this is getting a little too technical, God's name is not Lord in all caps. Let's take a little bit closer look at this Hebrew word here that is on the screen. The Hebrew language does not have vowels. So what I'm about to show you is four consonants that correspond to the Hebrew letters on the screen there. Those four consonants are this. Y-H-W-H. And if you are trying to match those to the corresponding English equivalent, remember that Hebrew reads from right to left, so that is the Y-H-W-H. Every time that people come to God's name, they put Lord, but that's not God's name. The Hebrew consonants are Y-H-W-H. Again, there were no vowels in Hebrew, so the best we know when we put vowels in God's name, this is what we conclude, that his name is Yahweh. This is God's name. This is what is in the Hebrew text here. At some point in making the Bible available in other languages, you know, there's a whole process from Hebrew to Greek to, you know, Latin or other languages, there was another variation of this Y-H-W-H, maybe it would be a little bit more familiar to you, it is these letters, J-H-V-H which resulted in another interpretation or uh, translation of God's name, Jehovah. How many of you guys have ever heard Jehovah before? This is God's name. Uh, I read an article this week that perhaps Jehovah is not as widely accepted as Yahweh for God's name. Um, Apparently, in Hebrew, there is no true J sound. That's a little bit more of an English or Germanic sound. If we're trying to stay as close as possible to the Hebrew pronunciation, Yahweh is our best guess. But I think both are accepted at this point. Does this make sense thus far? When God tells Moses in 3.15, this is the name that I want to be known by throughout all generations, it is not Lord. It's Yahweh. I heard a pastor say recently, God has a name like you or I. I'm Tyler. There's Joe and Kathy and Bill, and our God's name is Yahweh. It's his personal divine name. You may have a footnote in your Bible. I know the ESV does for sure that connects God's name Yahweh to the I am of the previous verse. This is not unanimously agreed upon, but scholars see a grammatical relationship between God's name Yahweh and the words I am, which means that God's name may be intended to actually communicate the attributes of I am. 
So when we encounter God's name, we are supposed to think the eternal, self-sufficient one. And frankly, I don't think that Lord communicates that. Our English translations insinuate, perhaps to an uneducated reader, that God's name is Lord, which has the implications of master or one in authority. Certainly that is part of God's description, but I don't think that that is what Yahweh is communicating. It's probably a little bit closer to being eternal and self-sufficient. I hope this makes sense. I realize this is a lot for you. But we have to answer the burning question, why did the ESV, the NIV, the NASB, the King James all come to God's name, YHWH, in the Hebrew and instead put the word Lord? Why did they make that translation decision? I think to begin to understand that, we need to understand the incredible reverence that the Jewish people had for God's name. Do you remember the third commandment? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. There came a point in Jewish history in which the Jews were so careful not to take God's name, Yahweh, in vain that they refused to say it anymore. So if someone were standing in front of a group of people like I am and was reading God's name or reading a passage of Scripture, let's say Psalm 23, they would read, Yahweh is my shepherd, but they wouldn't say that. They tried so hard to preserve God's name, they did not want to take it in vain, so they said, the Lord is my shepherd. In fact, they used another Hebrew word entirely. They said, Adonai is my shepherd. And what do you guys think Adonai means if you're connecting the dots? It means Lord. So think about this for a second. If you're a Jewish person who cannot read, and you're only ever hearing the scriptures read to you by someone else, are you going to ever hear God's name said? No, you're not. You're going to come to passages of Scripture like Proverbs 3, which says, trust in Yahweh with all of your heart, and you're going to hear, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust in Adonai with all your heart. It didn't just stop at reading out loud Adonai instead of Yahweh. Actually, it got to a point where people who were copying the scriptures, eventually Hebrew did get vowels. So when people copied the scriptures and they would come to God's name, they would still write Y-H-W-H, but they would insert the vowels from Adonai in its place or another name for God. They would put those vowels in between the Y-H-W-H, not necessarily creating a new word, but alerting the person reading it Hey, this is God's name. This is a mashup of two names of God. Do not say Yahweh. Say Adonai instead. Now, eventually, a Greek translation of the scriptures took the very next leap entirely 
and removed God's name, Yahweh, from their translation of the Old Testament and put the word Lord every time. So effectively, they removed Yahweh from the Old Testament entirely and replaced it with Lord. You still tracking with me here? Make sense, more or less? I realize this is a lot going on here. Back to our base question, though. Why do English translations put the word Lord here instead of God's name, instead of Yahweh? Why did someone go to the Hebrew text and decide to put Lord in all caps? Well, the simple answer is that they are keeping with Jewish tradition that started literally, this has been going on for thousands of years, this practice, and our English translations are keeping with that tradition. And they are uh, really, um, how would you describe that? They are pointing out the difference between where Yahweh is and where Adonai is in the Old Testament. When you see all caps, Lord, you know that is God's divine name. Behind that word is Yahweh. When you see capital L, lowercase o-r-d, that is just the word Adonai, which actually means Lord. I hope this makes sense to you. This topic is really interesting to me. A couple of just final comments as I wrap up this uh, rabbit trail, we'll call it. You may have had the question as you're reading this, can I trust my Bible? Feels a little bit like I'm being lied to. Right? People have chosen to put Lord instead of Yahweh. Why? Can I trust the English translation? To that question, I would just say yes. The ESV, I'll speak for them, they have a paragraph in the front of at least my Bible describing why they made this translation decision here. They know full well that God's name is not Lord. They know it is YHWH, and the short of it is that they are keeping with thousands of years of Jewish tradition here, and they are putting Lord instead of God's name. Also, in Exodus chapter 4, they have a footnote that says, when you see Lord in all caps, this stands for YHWH. So from their perspective, they're being pretty transparent. In the preface, in the footnotes, they are alerting us to the fact, no, we're not trying to sweep this under the rug. We're not trying to remove God's personal name from the scriptures. Simply, we're keeping with tradition. But honestly, in studying this out this week, I kind of appreciate an English translation that puts Yahweh in the text. It's good for us to remember that God has a name. He is not some force he is not some vague being. He is not just Lord in a general sense, although that is certainly true of God. Don't get me wrong. God is Lord, but he has a name. His name is Yahweh. He, he's the God who comes to Moses and says, my name is Yahweh. Tell this to the people of Israel. Yahweh has sent me, right? I think knowing God's name brings some passages of Scripture to life. Let me just show you one. Actually, I'm going to look at more than one because I think it's really interesting. Here is Psalm chapter 8. We have 
Yahweh first, and then Adonai immediately following it. Does that make sense? All caps, Lord is Yahweh, lowercase is Adonai. Our English translations say, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And if we're reading that, we're supposed to think to ourselves, I guess the name Lord is majestic? And we're left trying to connect the dots about why Lord is majestic? Okay, I think we could deduce what is majestic about God's name, given enough time and enough knowledge. But how about this English translation, which puts this? O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name, the I am in all the earth. There is no one else like Yahweh. I saw this this week. There are a lot of people that might have the title Lord, right? In like England, we call people lords and ladies, and the word Lord's kind of been muddied a little bit. David says to Saul, Lord, you know, and uh, the word Lord could be applied to other people than just God. There's only one Yahweh, and his name is majestic in all the earth. This Yahweh is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want you to think just again about what happens in Exodus chapter 5. I just showed you one of the verses on the screen, actually both of them. We're kind of led to believe that Moses stands before Pharaoh and says, Adonai tells you to let my people go. But is that actually what Moses says to Pharaoh? No, he doesn't. Moses says to Pharaoh, Yahweh said, let my people go. Now think about this for just a second here. I read this week that the people of Egypt have had as many as 2,000 gods. So, so Pharaoh, he knows the god of the Nile. He knows his name. Pharaoh knows the god of the underworld. Pharaoh knows the god of the sun. He knows all of their names, right? But when Moses says to him, Yahweh says, let my people go, his response makes a little bit more sense, doesn't it? Because he says, who is Yahweh? I've never heard of him. I don't know Yahweh. That, that's not someone I'm familiar with. And the book of Exodus actually sets us up then. For Yahweh, the God of Israel, to reveal himself. Because these gods of Egypt cannot hold a candle to what Yahweh is about to demonstrate for them. In fact, God is going to say, I want the people of Egypt to know who Yahweh is. And as Exodus plays out, you can read ahead. They're going to know. There is no one like Yahweh. Pretty awesome. One more comment here. Uh, there's no way we're going to finish the question, so I'll just finish with this here. In the Old Testament, at least, from this point forward, it seems, I don't know how common this is, I'll say it's fairly common, um, it seems that Jewish names actually end up merging parts of the divine name with their name. So, for instance, maybe I can describe that better than I just did, uh, there's a king whose name is Jehoshaphat in the Old Testament. 
And remember, Hebrew cannot really pronounce the J sound, so his name would have been Yehoshaphat, right? He is that Yah borrows from the divine name of Yahweh, and his name means Yahweh has judged. Yehoshaphat. Yahweh has judged or is judged or something to that effect. Think about this for just a second here. When we get to the New Testament, there is an angel who appears to Mary and says, you are going to have a son. In Hebrew, this son's name would have been pronounced Yeshua. Again, borrowing from the divine name. This baby's name means Yahweh is salvation. Jesus, Yahweh, is salvation. And how awesome then, this is one of our questions, but for Jesus himself to be standing in front of Jews who love their connection to Abraham, they are like patting themselves on the back, yes, I am related to Abraham. And Jesus says to them, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus, right then and there, these guys know what he's saying, they pick up stones to kill him. Jesus is equating himself with Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh. Right? There are people out there in cults who are going to tell you that Jesus is just a man. He's just a good guy. Jesus himself wouldn't even claim that. He says, I am the Yahweh of the Old Testament. We're one. Pretty awesome there. Thanks for hanging with me. Uh, I hope you're encouraged by this. Let me encourage you, maybe as a little exercise this week, God's name appears 5,000 times in the Old Testament. Every time it's all caps, L-O-R-D. But you might appreciate just going through the Psalms in particular and finding a translation that has Yahweh on a Bible software somewhere. There are some easy ones. If you're interested, I can point it out to you. But just go read a Psalm that says, Yahweh is my shepherd. And think about that. God's revealed himself to us. He's given us his personal name. There's something really intimate about that, something really neat, and I hope you were encouraged uh, by this study here this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for revealing yourself to us. You're not a force. You're not some abstract being. You're Yahweh. You've revealed yourself to Moses and to subsequent generations. And you've become our God as well through faith in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the riches of your word and some of the things we can glean from it, uh, like this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.